Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion. That USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. I'm looking out at a broad green valley in eastern Idaho. It's empty now, but pretty soon it will be filled with hundreds of head of cattle. They don't come for another week. In fact, that's why, you know, I'm fairly filthy. I whipped up here yesterday just to start fencing, and then I got a call that you wanted to talk. I was like, huh? Sure. Jennifer Ellis is a fourth-generation cattle rancher. My grandkids will be sixth-generation in the livestock industry in Idaho. Wow. From two sides. Are they going into the business? or is anyone, Does anyone leave and get out? Uh, you know, you the smart in, ones. Or do you get in trouble if you do? do. <laughs> <laughs> We're sitting outside her cabin next to her dog, Tink, which is a German Shepherd and Corgi mix. The German Shepherd part is all in the head, and the Corgi part is all in the body. And Tink looks as unusual as you would imagine. No offense, Tink. This is Playbook Deep Dive. I'm Ryan Lizza. Jennifer is a lifelong Republican. You know, I think that's one of those things you're kind of born into. Like a lot of conservative ranchers out West, she grew up arguing with environmentalists, Democrats, and assorted hippies who moved to Idaho for the natural beauty. But nowadays, her battle is with right-wing Republicans. Late last year, she helped found, and now chairs, Take Back Idaho. It's a conservative political action committee dedicated to defeating extreme candidates. And that's when I thought, these, these can't be the same people I grew up with. And when you look around the room, there was a whole lot of them that are quote-unquote move-ins. Ellis is the face of a Republican movement that accomplished something that hasn't received much attention. The biggest defeat of a candidate endorsed by Donald Trump this year. In the gubernatorial primary on May 17th, the incumbent governor, Brad Little, beat his own lieutenant governor, Janice McGeehan, and Trump's pick in the race by almost 21 points. Trump's endorsement here was odd. In other places where the former president has backed a right-wing challenger to a Republican incumbent, it's usually about revenge. For example, he's trying to take out every Republican who voted to impeach him. But the governor's office told me their relationship with Trump was always fine. Last fall, the governor was down in Mar-a-Lago at a Trump event, and the former president praised him. Two weeks later, Trump endorsed McGeehan. The governor's team never really figured out why. They suspect it was a big Trump donor with ties to McGeehan who brokered the deal, but that's just a guess. Whatever the answer, the endorsement freaked out the Republican establishment here in Idaho, a state Trump won in 2020 by a landslide, almost 31 points. McGeehan is a far-right candidate with links to Idaho militia members. In the middle of the campaign, she spoke in a pre-recorded video at white nationalist Nick Fuentes' AFPAC conference. She didn't just jump the shark, she ate it on the way over. Far-right's one thing, alt-right is a whole nother thing. Trump's endorsement galvanized Ellis and the Take Back Idaho movement, and they prevailed. 
Results were a little more mixed further down the ballot. Raul Labrador defeated the incumbent attorney general, Lawrence Wasden, who has held that office for 20 years. Wasden's sin? He didn't go along with one of the lawsuits that tried to turn over results in 2020. In the legislature, there was something of a draw between the establishment and the far right. Actually, a top official in the governor's office put it to me this way. There's a long list of people who got taken out on our side and a long list of people who got taken out on their side. The politics of every state are unique, but Ellis thinks that Idaho provides some lessons for her fellow old school Republicans facing similar insurgencies around the country. I actually think that there's groups like this working in most states. And this is something that sort of blows your mind when you read about the Idaho story. The John Birch Society is best known as an ultra-conservative, far-right organization that shot to notoriety in the 1960s for its Cold War-era conspiracy theories. It was pretty quickly pushed to the fringes of the conservative movement, but right now in Idaho, it is alive and well. Hey, that's enough. Like, the John Birch Society, really? Like, isn't, you know, isn't there something, like, newer and cooler on the extreme right? (laughs) But like, so how, how did that, how and why is that a thing here again? You know, I'm the age where it was kind of done. Um, had, you know, the Republican Party kind of not only said, uh, no, hell no. And they ditched them in the 70s and then they, their membership died off. Well, so, and in this part of the world right here that we're sitting, it was, um, they had a lot of them because of the LDS influence. But then when COVID well, hit... Yeah, this is one question I was I'm glad you really mentioned this. That really linked them all together. Someone had said to me yesterday that so much of this, you know, was ripe, um, but the kind of anti-government, libertarian uh, piece of this really needed COVID and suddenly you've really got the government doing stuff, yeah. lockdowns and mandates and, you know, this is, that's, uh, that's real stuff. Well, and it just lit a fuse. So did the anti-vaxxers become birchers or did the birchers become anti-vaxxers? <laughs> We're not sure, but the militias got them all together. You know, it got that stupid yeah. really fast. But COVID really kind of changed. Oh, yeah. How did COVID change the things? Dynamic. You just saw groups that had never occupied the same space on the same day all of a sudden their messages are commingling and they're messaging for each other yeah it it really coalesced well and all, and when we started doing our work to figure out who we were going to try and support as take back idaho um we had i want to say in our top tier of candidates we had 16 of them and the folks that we were going to oppose 11 of them were birchers Wow. So that's a huge part of this. It is. But now they're like a... They're doing interviews with the new American. <laughs> you know? Wow. Mm-hmm. Republicans. How important was Donald Trump's endorsement of the lieutenant governor, Janice? Janice McGeehan was one of the lowest percentage of his endorsed candidates she was one of the lowest um, returns, if yeah. you will. Yeah. I mean, she barely broke 32%. Yeah. Janice McGeehan. So I've been th- I was thinking about this on the way over. On the one hand, she got crushed. Yeah. But on the other hand, this, kind of, you know, this person who 
sort of openly endorsed militia members and was palling around to use a an old uh, an old Sarah Palin Sarah Palin phrase mm-hmm. um, with some uh, with um, militia folks who had, if I'm not mistaken, Oath Keepers and Three Percenters doing security at her events, essentially. And, you know, when the governor went out of town or out of the state, would, you know, issue executive orders that he would have to then rescind. I mean, pretty wild stuff. So, I don't know, there's like a glass half empty, half full thing here where she's she's still got 30-something percent of the vote. Right. I mean, a really out there candidate. Right. So I think that we've let the Overton window slide too far in Idaho. Yeah. Because we, so when she swore the militia in on Patriot's Day, she was acting governor at that point. Because when the governor's out of state, she's acting governor. Right. Right. There's a difference between an Eric Parker and an Emma Bundy and a Nick Fuentes, and a Stu Peters, and a Vincent James Fox. And Fuentes, just so listeners know, one of the big controversies in her uh, campaign was Janice McGeehan did a pre-recorded uh, speech at Fuentes's uh, event in Orlando, Florida. Um, he's a white supremacist. Absolutely. And that's probably the best thing that he is. <laughs> <sighs> so we got... Since we formed Take Back Idaho, we've been on the receiving end of a lot of interesting intel. You know, people felt like maybe there was a place to say, hey, did you guys know this is going on? So we got tipped off pretty early that she had done this. And so we went and found the live streams and watched that four and a half hour disgusting. And she, she didn't even, she didn't just jump the shark. She ate it on the way over. I mean, we, we've, far right's one thing. Alt-right is a whole nother thing. And so I really thought there would be more outrage to that in Idaho. I was a little disappointed. And then she leaned into it. So, you know, she tried to do the, I was just talking to young conservatives thing. And I didn't know. And then she goes on Stu Peters' podcast three weeks later and leans into it. It sort of embraces it. Yeah. Yeah, and she could have, at any time, she could have said, I am really sorry. I did not know that's who these people were. And and Idaho would have taken her at her word. That's what makes me sick. She could have done that at any point. But she realized that this was her political base, and she needed to lean into it. Is that, the, is that what's happening? Was that what happened in that race? We will never know what that dumpster fire became. I just, or what instant. You know, she was a legislator from Idaho Falls for a long time. Right. And she was conservative, but she was not that. Were you surprised that Trump endorsed her? No. Um, She'd gone all in um, on his 2020 race. She'd bundled a lot of money for people. You know, she delivered it to Donnie Jr. She was front and center, full MAGA all the time. So, no. And Don Jr. was here? Yeah. He came During to the gubernatorial campaign. Uh, yeah, he came to the Ada County Central Committee. He presented there. Is there any? Was there any moment of revelation to you when you were sort of like really digging into and trying to understand this movement in you know in the last 
five, six years. You know, I think it was when I'd start um, checking source data, to tell you the truth. Um, I'd look at the source data from uh, the Freedom Foundation. <laughs> it would be laughable data. So when you're a policy nerd that you like crafting policy, you always want to go back and make sure that that you're basing everything you're doing on a fact, you know, peer-reviewed, data-driven, because if you don't, y you get so far in the development of a bill or of a process, and there's holes in it, and it goes down in flames. So you try and avoid that. Yeah. Um, so when I started looking at um, source data that was leading back to groups from outside of Idaho, and I saw Bill Mills starting to push a lot of um, national legislation from, um, you know, the ALEC, the State Policy Network, um, which in some things I'd be aligned with their thought processes. But it was stuff that didn't feel right hmm. be because of how it was then premised in Idaho, right? Oh, this is grassroots and so-and-so and -so legislator just came up with this. And it's they did not. <laughs> you know, it's been promulgated. It's been pushed out there in this network so that they can they can take the the legislatures, and then that starts driving national policy because I'll start to influence who you send to Congress, who you elect as a senator, um, you know, yeah. all of how that web works. But people don't know how that works because they really don't want anything to do with politics by and large. As is witnessed yesterday when thirty percent of people voted in Idaho. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. we get the government we deserve. <laughs> then you have the Christian nationalist thought process come in and say, you're not a good enough Christian either. That is a super powerful combination. Yeah. Um, and as we've seen, very few will stand up to it. What precipitated this first meeting you guys all, you all had? And where was it? Set the scene for us. <laughs> so... We had a meeting in Boise, and everybody was there, and we talked about what mechanism would make sense, which what wasn't there in Idaho. There is no defense league for the folks who do not fall under the sphere of protection from the IFF. So we decided then the best mechanism was a PAC, and um, that way every bit of money that came in would be reported it would be transparent. You know, you can't fool around with PACs. And and so we raised $157,000. That's not in the scheme of this thing very dang much. But we knew we had to um, try and be very strategic about how we utilize it because it just wasn't that much. Yeah. I mean, I'll bet you in the reporting that we see in June when the final campaign numbers come out, I'll bet you we'll see ledge races that top $130,000. Wow, that's a lot for a ledge race for in Idaho. a legislative seat for a three-month legislature. When you look around at other states that are having a similar uh, inter-party fight or intra-party fight, any, are any other states look similar to what's going on in Idaho to you? Oh, yeah. What are the, what Montana, are the ones closest? Wyoming. Montana, Montana and Wyoming. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they have the same thing going on. Liz Cheney obviously is in the middle of that in Wyoming. Right. What do you think when you watch when you as you're watching that? Just so disappointed. Just so disappointed. I mean, she has been a conservative stalwart her entire career, 
and I guess we just keep picking this one dude over everything. Over democracy, over, you know, rule of law. I hope that that is waning. From your perspective, like, what's what really, like, scares the shit out of you about these guys? Boy, that's a lot of levels. So when you have militia leaders that um, have, in essence, tried to rehabilitate themselves as um, something that they want to maybe be because they want to be in politics, it's still very clear to me who and what they are and who they associate with and the threat that they bring to the state house, that they bring to school board meetings, to public health board meetings. I do think that we made a huge difference in that vein. Now, when you talk about the one step down to the far right, because of the influence of the Idaho Freedom Foundation, these folks will naturally gravitate that way. And most of them had help um, getting elected by the machinery that surrounds the Idaho Freedom Foundation. For example, these folks will go in and they will try and impress the Idaho Freedom Foundation because if they don't, the Freedom Foundation will help generate a primary challenge to their right instantly. The Freedom Foundation will rank bills before they're voted on and they give them plus, minus, whatever, whatever. So the minute that someone doesn't vote the way they're suggesting you do, you're either going to draw a primary challenge or you're instantly going to have this backlash on social media. They love using social media. And um, it's not straight-up intimidation, but it's um, things that make people not want to buck them all the time because it's so continual. You know, like after some of these bills, it'll be a committee hearing and the legislators will leave a committee hearing and within 10 minutes, their social media just going crazy saying, look what this rhino did. They voted against freedom and liberty, you know, their old mantras. And so they back a lot of people into a corner, especially if they don't really know who and what they are wanting to represent in that building. So the folks that they get elected, they consider them their champions. They have to have them as their index includes Democrats, and they have to have these high-performing um, numbers. So 85 to 100 percenters, they have to have them to make their index work. Because without them, the majority of Republican lawmakers in this state would be within a 30-40 spread. Huh. So that's statistically insignificant. You can't say so-and-so's a rhino if somebody's a 65 and somebody's a 45, right? Yeah. But that's not how they have to have it. So they have to put a ton of money into their champions, and that's what you see. Their champions are their top performers. Their top performers, <laughs> right. And so with being a top performer, you get all the benefits, right? It's kind of like a... What do they call those pyramid scheme things? I was just going to say. <laughs> the better you do, sounds, the yeah. more you get, right? Yeah. yeah. The top performers does sound a little bit like Amway. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, right? Because they know that they won't, they'll never get primaried from their right, obviously. The factionalism that you that, that started to really freak you out, I mean, does it come along with the rise of Trump in 2015 or predates that? Or It was coming before that. Yeah. 
I think that it was um, the Tea Party movement. Yes, that's 2010. I'm feeling really bad because of bird flu. I can't feed my hummers, and they're just like buzzing all around here. That's going, what that was, right? Food. Okay. Yeah. yeah, I had it out for them, and then I read an article yesterday and went, "Oh my gosh, I could kill them all." Okay. They're my favorite critters, and. They don't get fed this year, apparently. Oh, no. But one of them, he's pretty hostile. <laughs> oh, really? Like he comes in close yeah, like that guy? He was, yeah. He'll be back, and he kind of, he'll hover right here like. Like, where's my food? Seriously, lady? <laughs> yeah, there's nothing blooming up here. And then he'll make a run at my fake flowers, which is funny, too. Oh, that's funny. Uh, Poor guy. But, no, uh, it was coming from the Tea Party movement. You know, a lot of the folks that are um, in high-level places now in the GOP in Idaho were Ron Paul folk. Yeah, um, yeah. So the libertarians really did infiltrate at that point. Um, so that divisive, my way or the highway, villainizing, you know, before that, the Democrats and the Republicans would have a squabble um, over policy something. Yeah. And by and large, they'd go out to dinner that night. Boise was that, it's that kind of capital. Yeah, it was not this... Yeah. We'd go talk to, you know, uh, Democrat senators and legislators, and they may not be willing to commit to fully support something we were trying to do, but it was always super congenial. Um, most in generally, they'd say, you know, if we just can't get behind it, we'll just stay out of it kind of thing. Yeah. Um, so then when you started seeing people referring to elected Democrats as demon rats or, yeah. you know, you start to go, wait a minute, what is that? That's so disrespectful. And I guess maybe I'm old and I'm a prude, but I still believe in respecting, you know, public office no matter what, mm. um, until they completely betray the trust of the constituency and then it's over. And so as that started to ramp up and then you saw these culture war bills start being dragged in for nothing more than uh, political theater, um, so that they'd have something to run on, because you know nothing more boring than going home and telling you, "Hey, we got a bill patch passed that they're going to patch some potholes, you know, down south there." And what were the culture war issues that sort of started? You started to see more of that weren't part of Idaho politics as much before. Um, the national push, I think, started here with the education choice stuff. That nobody, and I will say I don't think hardly anybody knew that it was being driven by national organizations then um, to try and start, would you say, pushing on the public schools and then the vouchers piece. And now this, you know, the Freedom Foundation has said publicly that they want to defund all Idaho public schools. Um, What's, what are they worked up about now? Is it choice oh, or is it like the book bans and... Oh, well, the latest red herring's been CRT. Yeah, yeah. You're rolling your eyes. Oh, jeez. What a hoax. They all knew it is. Chris Rufo set that in place. I mean, that's the fascinating thing when you're curious and you want to know who's pulling whose strings. When you see what the Heritage Foundation and all of these quote-unquote right-wing think tanks did there and then we had enough of a contingent in Idaho that were Freedom Foundation um, champions that they just ran off with that narrative. And before long, it, it nobody'd stand in its way. Not 
quote-unquote moderate Republicans or anything. And so they've been taking money away from higher ed. They've been, oh shoot, the last bill. Uh, they wanted to criminalize librarians for smut in libraries. And so if your kid got a book that had something the parents didn't like, then the librarians were going to be charged. Um, that was all part and parcel of the Freedom Foundations. You know, it's this vicious circle that they like to do. Public education's bad. No, it's not. Well, we're going to make it look bad. And then pretty soon when public education starts to drop because of the vitriol, because of teachers leaving, because of everything else they've got going, trying to demonize it, then they come back in and say, see, public education's bad. <laughs> so they got to have a red herring of the week, basically. Um, we got a new, um, they hired a new president at BSU, it's not been four Boise years State ago. University yes, Boise State University. For our listeners in Ohio who don't know. Right, right. <laughs> you know, we only have a few here. It's not like a plethora. But they're, they're basically trying <laughs> to defund BSU unless, what did you tell us? Oh, because they, they had uh, curriculum and, oh, how did they put that first? Well, so the, the new president had been there like two weeks when she gets this nasty gram from the far-right legislators in Idaho saying, you're going to get rid of your diversity, equity, inclusion uh, curriculum. And everybody just kind of brushed it off. But that was the beginning of the big push here. And they've made her life miserable. I mean, but they've tried to do it to every administrator in the state, be it higher ed or K-12. Did the, being the face of uh, Take Back Idaho... Um, was there any personal cost to you in terms of the backlash or being targeted by the people you were trying to defeat? Mm, not now that the... <laughs> no. Because no? Um, you got a lot of attention during the campaign. Not so... You know, it hasn't been as bad with Take Back Idaho as it was with Idaho Conservatives. And I think this is the phenomenon that people need to understand. The more of you that stand up together, the safer you are. Um, so with Idaho conservatives, they took the gloves off. Um, the far right and the militias took the gloves off then because they, we didn't have any backup. We were kind of like the canary in the coal mine, if you will. Yeah. And so, yeah, there was threats then. There was things that, um, yeah. What happened? Um, well, maybe a couple of things I don't want on the record because I don't want to give them credit. Um, the militias decided that it would be a good idea to dox me. But when they doxed me, they used my mother-in-law, who's 84's phone number. And so that was pretty unpleasant. Um, there were some threats. I think they were used to that, making people sit down and shut up. Yeah, you know, which it kind of does. I'm, I have a unique situation, and so do... The folks on Take Back Idaho now. Um, I don't. I'm self-employed. I have no political aspirations, and so they couldn't really do anything, right? But I've had friends that the threats were pretty dang scary. Um, what kind of stuff? All they did was piss me off. <laughs> so. What were the threats to your friends? Um, doxing of their kids, and then the the online, you know take your last breath today or enjoy your last days, you know, we're coming after you. Yeah. That kind of stuff. 
when they dox, is there a for, is there a single forum or way that they post the personal information online? Uh, because they have all of these astroturfing sites. I mean, when we got, I think I quit gathering them up in March. I had sixty different right wing astroturfing media sites in Idaho. It's Idaho specific, and wow. so it could just go through it just like that. Yeah. And then the closed groups and the, you know, all that stuff. So. Where do you guys go from here? That will be telling. Uh, we had a kind of a running joke when we started this, and I said, now, do we want to save some money for the, the general? And all of my friends laughed and said, hey, we just want to still be alive on May 17th. You know? Meaning what? Just in terms of well, the workload? Well, some of us or have, like... we're a lot long in the tooth, you know? Oh, I see. <laughs> They'd literally be dead. <laughs> so, I don't know. Idaho's going to have to decide that. Are you the, proud? So go ahead. Sorry. The, more they, the more we all stand up and the more we all get educated and help, you know, row this boat, it, it wouldn't be a heavy lift. I mean, look what we were able to accomplish well, in a pretty short amount of time. And just um, one more time, what was that? The accomplishment. Um, I think we brought some accountability to groups and legislators who had always operated with impunity, no matter what they did. And so they had some some pushback that wasn't just a one-off, it was sustained. Well, thank you for talking. I really appreciate it. Sure. <laughs> it wasn't too painful. No, no. No. And that's our show. This episode was produced by Kara Tabor and Brooke Hayes. Adam Allington is our senior producer. Jenny Ament is Politico's executive producer of audio. Mike Zappler is Playbook's daily newsletter editor. Special thanks this week to Benjamin Bombard with KUER Public Radio in Salt Lake City, who recorded me and Jennifer Ellis on her ranch in Idaho. Our music is by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. I'm Ryan Lizza. Thank you for listening. 